Hello? teacher would often tell me something along the lines like this. She would say, Dom, it's too hard to learn the whole song all at once. It's much too hard. What you need to do, Dom, you need to break the song up. Nope. Was that me? I don't know. Turn it off. I don't think it's me. Whoa. It's me? All right, sure, should I just keep going? Okay, so my piano teacher would tell me, break the song up, it's too hard to learn on your own. Uh, sorry, all at once. And so, um, learn one of the parts. Learn one of the parts of the song and go from there. And so what would all normally happen is the piano teacher would say, what you should do, Dom, you should start with the right hand. Learn the right hand part. Uh, and, you know, typically the right hand part is the, the tune the melody, the, the bit that we kind of all know. And so, for example, for example, it'd be something like this. I'll stop there. I won't keep going. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, thanks, Ivan. Uh, and when I got confident enough with that, the piano teacher said, okay, now, Dom, you can add another part, another voice uh, to what you're learning so that you can know the song better. Uh, and so I would add uh, the left hand, obviously you only have two hands, um, and be, practice that on its own. Uh, the thing is though, quite often the left hand part sounded nothing like the song I was learning. I don't know if this is true for those of you who have learned instruments. Uh, so for example, it would sound something like this for that song that I just played. doesn't really sound like chopsticks, right? And then there are some songs, really, uh, some of the more difficult ones, they had more parts, more voices that you had to add, which sounded even more foreign to the song when I was trying to know and, and learn them, right? Uh, so for this song, it would be like this. And so... You've got these three different parts, these three different voices, these three different elements that uh, on its own kind of doesn't sound totally right. But when you put it together, the melody bit, the harmony bit, that's the way the song is meant to be known and played. Now, uh, should I put it together? All right, let's give it a go. Right, so see, each individual part, each individual voice, um, you, when you piece it together, you know the song. Well, and it's not just true for the piano, right? It's true for every instrument, it's true for every choir, it's true for every orchestra, every band. That process is the same, right? You're adding layers, you're, you're, you're adding parts, you're adding voices, you're adding sections to it uh, to know and learn the song the way that it's meant to be done, fully. Now, while... The psalm that we're looking at today, and we are going to look at the Bible, um, while God is certainly not a song, and He is far from a song, right? Far, far, far from a song. 
the psalm tells us in some ways that knowing God in some ways has some similarities to learning a song. In fact, I think the psalm shows us three voices, three parts. Uh, Not all of them are the melody, but that God intends for us to know Him, for us to do that, for us to know Him, these things are meant to be in harmony with one another. Right? And so if you've got outlines as you came in, you'll see the three voices there in front of you. Right? There's the silent voice, the silent word of creation. Then you've got the perfect word of Yahweh. And then you've got the searching word of the hearer. Now, uh, together, in harmony, they help us know God. And so before we look any further into the psalm, let me commit this time to God in prayer and asking for Him to speak clearly to us and get our minds as far away from that terrible song as possible. Uh, Father God, we uh, just want to come before You knowing that You are a God that wants to make Yourself known. You're not a God that is uh, distant and, and somehow uh, hidden, uh, that You have revealed Yourself and You want to speak to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we meet as Your people, uh, that we would be ready to hear, ready to be changed. We pray that the words that come out of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. We pray for the meditation of all our hearts, that that would be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this for Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to begin with uh, the first voice, the voice of creation, the silent word of creation. Now, the psalmist begins his song much in a similar way that we, be, we began uh, today's service, singing and thinking about nature, right? looking at the natural world by looking to the world around us, at the skies, at the heavens, above, at the stars, the moon, the sun. Now, I wonder, oh, I hope you've done this, right? Have, have you ever looked outside on a plane, right? You're, 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 um, you're on your way up, you're ascending into the clouds, and you reach that point where you are gliding just high enough to be in the midst of the clouds or just slightly above the clouds, right? And you see the pillowy form up close. It's surrounding you, right? And depending on the time of day, the weather, you've got all these different colors clashing all together and you just want to, like, see if you can sleep on them. Or I wonder whether you've gone out far enough from the city, perhaps into the middle of a field and stared up at the clear night sky, filled with glistening stars and a crescent moon. And darkness is all around you clearly, but yet the night just seems so bright because of all these lights above. Or have you ever sat on top of a hill, all rugged up, so early in the day that you get to see the sun just begin to break over the horizon, warming the air around you with its rays, that you see the darkness begin to break away in the presence of light, signaling a beginning of a new day. Friends, why, why can nature amaze us in this way? Why can it fill us with wonder? Why can it move us? Why, when you gaze above, can it take your breath away? Why, in some cases, can it give you such calm and such perspective? If you've learned anything about these heavenly bodies in the last century, it's that it's all pretty ordinary stuff, right? It's made out of gas, rock, liquid, water vapors, and they're just going up all flying around above us. Why does nature impact us the way that it does? And the psalmist gives us an answer. 
And the answer is this, that nature has the capacity to affect you deeply because nature is great art. Nature is great art. You see, when you come face to face with great art, it might be, you know, a piece of visual art. It could be a great story, a great poem, a great piece of literature, a great piece of music. That has the capacity to move you, doesn't it? And nature, according to the psalmist, can move us like great art because it is great art. And so if we, like the psalmist, if we pay close enough attention to these cosmic works of art, we begin actually to be directed away from them, turned towards their words and their speech. And and as we look through the first two verses of the psalm, we're going to see this focus on speech, aren't we? In verse 1, we see the skies and the heavens, what do they do? They declare the glory of God. They proclaim the work of His hands. Right? The form in the original language implies that this speech isn't a once-off thing. It's not like they've done it once and then they're done. Right? This is something that they declare and they proclaim ongoing. And even if we were to miss that, verse 2 says that the speech that they give, it's day after day, it's night after night. See, nature doesn't stop speaking. It doesn't stop declaring. It doesn't stop proclaiming. So what is it saying? It's saying this. It's saying that we're not an accident. Nature is saying we were crafted beautifully. We were fashioned purposefully. We are products of immense imagination and powerful passion. We are works of art created by an artist, the likes that no other artist comes close to comparing. And the way verse 1 is structured, again, in, in, in the original language, begins with the word, the heavens. And the verse ends with the sky. You've got it there. And right in the center of the verse, you have the glory of God and the work of His hands. I've tried to make it in English. It doesn't really make sense. It kind of sounds a bit like Yoda. But you'll see in the center, right? Right at the center of the heavens and the skies, its purpose is to proclaim endlessly, according to the psalmist, about God and His creative glory. And it's wonderful, isn't it? See, when we look into the skies, whether it's by naked eye or through a telescope, what nature wants to reveal to us is God's creative genius from its radiance to its rhythmic, repetitive speech. And so we're going to see this even more clearly as the psalmist moves to verses 5 and 6. He gives the illustration of of the sun. When it rises and when it sets, it rises like the radiance of a bridegroom just married, coming out of the bridal chamber after the first night together as bride and groom. The journey of the sun from east to west, from rising to setting, is like a champion who sets out to run his course with great strength, starting and finishing as intended with great power. Nothing can escape the sun's heat as it makes its course. It's powerful and it illuminates everything in its path. You can't avoid it. And that little bit about the sun, we're going to come back to that because that's pretty important. We'll come back to that in a bit later. But um, earlier this year, National Geographic, uh, they interviewed a number of people, astronauts, who had, you know, obviously not, astronauts, they'd seen the earth from space. And the magazine feature had the subheading, um, they saw earth from space, here's how it changed. And then there's this little line, you might not be able to see it, it says, um, the majesty um, of our planet can be difficult to describe, but these astronauts will try. Right? In, in the feature, you hear one of the astronauts that describe that they were so gobsmacked when they saw the side of the oceans and all its colors, that he began searching for new words that describe all the different shades of blue. 
Another said that they never got tired looking at the earth from space and said they wouldn't want to be, now that they've returned, in the same room with someone who could even possibly get tired of that. Now, what have these astronauts done since returning home from their voyages? Well, since coming home, some of them have branched into fine art because they want to illustrate what they've seen. Some have moved towards animal conservation. Some have begun coalitions thinking about balancing ecological health and human needs. See, what's common across all these interviews is that even with all the advances of space discovery, even with all the developments of technology to understand nature and the universe better, what it hasn't done, what it hasn't brought about is some sort of indifference to it. It hasn't brought about some sort of, oh man, that, that, I'm done with that, I'm moving on now. What it has done, it has grown more fascination, it has made us more awestruck. See, none of these astronauts came back dulled. It changed their world and their life completely. And I want to say to you today that the Christian belief agrees with this understanding of nature more than any other belief and worldview. Right? You've got Eastern beliefs, for example. They say that the natural world is an illusion. Right? It's temporary. It's going to pass away. There's nothing valuable about nature. Don't bother. You've got the Western secular belief that says that nature is actually just violent. Right? You've got organisms that have survived and beaten others to remain. There's not much beauty in that, is there? But you see, the Christian faith, Christianity holds that the things of nature, they're works of art. They're to be discovered, they're to be valued, they're beautiful. And even more than that, that as fellow creatures, humans, as fellow creatures, we're to see nature as fellow works of art. I don't think there's any other view of reality that holds nature with such dignity and care than the Christian faith. So I've spent all this time talking about how we have such a high view of nature and creation, right? But as we're going to soon see, the psalmist, in, even in his own song, recognizes that there are some shortcomings of relying on nature, well, in particular, relying on nature to know God. And he says at least two, right? The first reason he gives is that the speech of creation, it's silent, right? It's silent. Have a look back at verse 3 of Psalm 19. What does it say? It says, they, as in the heavens and the skies, right? They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Which almost doesn't make sense, except when, we're, when we realize that we're all kind of pretty familiar with nonverbal communication, aren't we? Right? We use it all the time. Gestures, actions, signs. And it can be effective in some circumstances, but we, we also know that it can also be limiting in others. So, for example, if I were to show you this, open question, what does that mean? And I don't want the answer, you look at it and you get a punch, right? What, what, does, it, what does it mean? Three-pointer, yeah, it does mean three-pointer, that's true, in a certain American subculture basketball. Yep. For us here in Sydney, Australia, what does that mean? Okay, right? A-okay, right? A-okay. Um, but yes, three-pointer, absolutely. Um, but if you were in Brazil, that just kind of proves my point, right? In America, when they see that, they'll think of something different. In Brazil and in Russia, apparently if you show this sign, it's a sexual insult. If you were to do this in Tunisia, it means that you're worthless. In Japan, if you do this, apparently this is, this is money. I, I know some people have been to Japan here. Does that, does that ring any bells? 
Here's another, just for, just for a little bit of fun. What about this? Quick, quick. Like, yep, Facebook like. What else? Good, agree, great. Um, now, if you did this apparently in the Middle East, it's a highly offensive version of thumbs down. Now, I don't know what that means. What is a highly ver offensive version of thumbs down? In Greece, uh, excuse my language, it, mean, it means up yours. Uh, I got all of that from a quick Google search, so it could be totally wrong. But the point remains, right? Non-verbal silent speech can be, can be interpreted differently. The silent speech of creation can be misinterpreted. But that's not the only shortcoming. It can also be easily ignored. Right? The Apostle Paul makes that exact point in the book of Romans. He says that although the truth of creation is plain for everybody to see, that truth is suppressed for many people. People ignore it. Right? So you've got that uh, reason why um, there are some shortcomings of, of nature to know God. There's another that the psalmist points to, and maybe you noticed it this week if you looked at this psalm in your community groups, is that the speech of creation is not just silent, it's impersonal. It's impersonal. See, you see, in verses 1 to 6, um, he uses a certain word to, to, to name God. Right? He, he, in our translation, just says God, which is pretty much the most generic term you can possibly use to describe God. But from verses 7 onwards, right to the end of the psalm, he will shift his language to now use Lord. Right? You'll see that in your translations. Or, or maybe you, you know the word Yahweh, the personal name of God that he reveals to his prophet Moses before the formation of Israel as a nation. That, that's kind of like if I were to tell you I am, if I firstly just said, I'm a man, that's true, right? But if I tell you I'm Dom, that's also true. They, they, they're both true, but they reveal different things. One is generic, one is entirely personal. That's what the psalmist is talking about with God. See, the psalmist is making it a significant point. He's saying that if the speech that pours forth from nature, even if that's interpreted rightly, it doesn't reveal God, as in God, the relational, personal God, who has revealed Himself. See, as revealing as nature is, as much as we can know about God from nature, we need more. And so there are a number of shortcomings, which is why it's really unsurprising where the psalmist goes to next in the next few verses, right? He moves to the next voice, our second point, the perfect word of Yahweh. On your outline, second point, the perfect word of Yahweh. Now, I know on a Sunday uh, afternoon, evening, going into a deep dive into poetry isn't most people's cups of tea. Uh, probably for most of you, it's the last thing you want to do. But as you've heard over the last few weeks, um, the Psalms is a collection of songs and poems. And so to understand it, we're going to have to do a bit of poetry digging. So follow along with me. The poetry, from verses 7 onwards, it shifts pretty significantly, doesn't it? Right? It goes, you, in the first six verses, you've got these really free-flowing, grand, loose pictures. Um, and from verse 7 to 9, it all of a sudden gets very, you know, very tight, very symmetrical, very rhythmic, consistently anyway, in verses 7 to 9. And if you look even more closely, you'll see that they're structured, those three verses, verses 7 to 9, exactly the same. Right? Have a look at me, I've, I've got it on the slide. Um, oh, it's a bit small, can you see that? Hope you can. Um, so, you've got there um, a line of poetry that begins with something about the instruction of Yahweh. Right? So, you've got the law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, fear of the Lord, decrees. 
That begins each line in these three verses. Then consistently, it moves on to an adjective, right? The fear of the Lord is perfect. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. The precepts of the Lord are right. There's a set rhythm. And then lastly, you have a benefit from Yahweh's instruction, right? See, the, Lord of the, Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect. It refreshes the soul. It makes wise the simple. It gives joy to the heart. It gives light to the eyes, and so on and so forth. See, you have this movement, movement from this loose, free-flowing structure and rhythm in the first six verses. Now you've got this tight, symmetrical structure and rhythm in the next three. Why does the author do this? What's he trying to do? What, why, why bother, right? Some people have actually said that maybe these were two different psalms just stitched together, that they were written by two different people and you stitched together. I want to say that that's probably not the case. I think the writer is actually trying to communicate something amazing about knowing God through this shift in poetry. Something astounding. See, what is it? See, while nature proclaims and declares the glory of God, it's at best fuzzy. It's at best free-flowing. It's at best unclear. And as we've already said, it's impersonal and can be misinterpreted, right? But as we turn to God's instructions, His perfect Word, we get a clear, perfect view of Him. See, we can know Him deeply. We can know Him clearly from His instructions. See, we don't just know this Creator God of nature. By His instructions, we know the personal Yahweh. It's perfect, His instructions, unlike the silent voice of nature. To kind of extend the metaphor a little bit, it's, this is the melody, right, of the three voices of this psalm. See, friends, the shift in poetry isn't just for some nice contrast. It communicates to us something earth-shattering about how God makes Himself known. See, God has given His people clear instruction. He hasn't left them to, his own, to their own devices to figure Him out through peering through trees and caves. He's given them His instructions, His precepts, His statutes, His commands, His wisdom, His ordinance, which, by the way, you're not meant to kind of like trying to find out which bits are the precepts and which bits are the instruction and which bits are the ordinance. They're all together comprehensive to show us that all of the words of Yahweh are beneficial. Right? When this was first sung as a song by the Israelites, Yahweh's perfect instructions would have come to them from the first five books of our, of our modern Bible. Right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Right? The first five books. God had given that to them, and that's what they turned to for guidance. See, for them, as they sung that song, Yahweh's instructions were not just rules and laws to abide by. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments to live by. It provided guidance to them for right and wise living. And like our psalm today, it gave them a source of refreshment, joy and light to the eyes. And perhaps for us, who, you know, are kind of on a very different timeline in salvation history, who perhaps prefer to read the New Testament over the Old, and maybe even reduce the Old Testament as burdensome, out of date, maybe we've got to unlearn some of that and begin to read and see the Old Testament the way the writer of the psalm did, as instruction for the people of God into right and wise living in relationship with Him. Remember the Old Testament, and this is key, right? God's instructions were never given to Israel as a way for them to gain or win access to Him. That was never the case. See, God was already dwelling in the midst of His people. He had already saved them. He already loved them. The instructions that God gave always came after His love and salvation. 
in order to guide them into, to live holy, to live right, precisely because they were already loved and saved. Right? This was never given to gain or win access to Him. And for us, right, Jesus, He never abolished what was said in the Old Testament, right? He fulfilled it. And so there is still great wisdom and delight for us as God's people, here and now, as we come to Yahweh's instruction in the Old Testament. But of course, now that applies and extends to all of Scripture for us. It's not just the first five books, it extends to all of Scripture, but let's not neglect what goes on in the Old Testament just because it's old. Now, you might be here today, and when you hear words like, the Bible is perfect, you might automatically respond, well, hang on, I actually disagree with that. The Bible isn't perfect, and here's why, because there are things in the Bible that offend me. It's offensive. It's regressive. And if that's you, I want to firstly say welcome. It's great that you're here. But also, and secondly, can I urge you maybe, I'm going to speak to you for a moment and just urge you to, just st- to step back for a sec and consider this. That what offends you does not necessarily universally offend all people. In fact, I want to say that there isn't a set of offensive texts that is true across all history and all time. Right? What actually offends people changes with every era. It changes with every culture. Let me give you an example. Right? There are cultures in certain parts of the world that have seen their family members killed right before their very eyes by their enemies. Now, if you went to them and you showed them passages that say, forgive your enemies, love your enemies, that's highly offensive to them, right? Makes sense? Now, for us who live in very comfortable part, a very comfortable part of the world, forgiving our enemies and loving them is almost common sense, right? Of course we embrace forgiving our enemies, as much as we can, we would even advise it to others, maybe. You see, texts that are offensive and backwards to you, I want to say are actually more products of your social location, right? You're upset at things that are likely true only to the culture that you live in. Now, that doesn't take away the fact that it is offensive to you. Don't hear me say that. If it's offensive to you, it's offensive to you. But also realize that there is no set of texts that offend all people across all time. And also realize that if you subconsciously believe that what offends you must be true for all people, and if they aren't offended by that, somehow there's something lacking for them, it's a little bit narrow to think that way. I've heard it explained this way, right? If you think back to the views of your great-grandparents, doesn't matter if you've met them or not, your great-grandparents, if you think back to some of their views, chances are a lot of them will embarrass you. A lot of them. Now, don't you think that if you were to one day have great-grandkids of your own, that they would look at some of your sets of beliefs and be similarly embarrassed? See, what God has revealed in Scripture, although it was set in history, in a time and in a place, we believe that it transcends time. We believe that it transcends culture, which means that it will always be offensive in one way or another to every culture and to every society. And so if your reservations with the Bible, if they're culturally bound, can I encourage you maybe just to lay them aside for a bit as you wrestle? Because chances are, in 50 to 100 years, they might not be so relevant. 
Sorry, that was a bit of a long detour, but I, th- I thought it was worth mentioning. So we've, we've, we've looked at the silent word of creation. We've now looked at the perfect word of Yahweh. And we're going to turn to our third voice, the searching word of the hearer. The searching word of the hearer. Um, let me uh, read again from verse 10. Follow along with me. Verse 10. They, as in God's instruction, His perfect word, are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What a great prayer. What a great prayer to God. And we're going to look at two aspects of that prayer, right? We're going to look at the poetry first, and then we're going to look at the posture of that prayer. Poetry and posture. Uh, Firstly, notice the poetry again, right? Uh, We're going to see that there's a little bit of, there's a bit of a clever wordplay going on here, right? To connect back with the imagery of the sun that we saw in verse 6. For instance, the the, um, original language for the word heat back in verse 6 is deliberately a bit ambiguous. It can mean heat, like we've got in our Bibles, but it can also mean fury and anger. Two meanings. And we can kind of see why, right? It kind of depends where you stand. See, heat on one hand can mean warmth, the way we see in our Bibles, which is a positive thing when, you know, it's cold, it's dark. But on the other hand, heat and warmth can be terrifying. Experiencing ang- like experiencing anger and fury. See, when you're on the brink of dehydration, for example, and you get a heat wave come through, or if you're trying to deliberately hide in the shadows, trying to stay away from the light, and then the heat and the light come through, that is terrifying. See, what the servant is saying, what the prayer is praying, is that as he, as he looks at Yahweh's perfect word, examining himself, he sees that like the sun, there is both reward, the warmth, but there is also warning, that heat. Right? And, and scholars reckon that the word warned in verse 11 that we've got in our translations it might not be precise enough, right? because it actually means illuminate or illumine, just like the sun, again connecting back with verse 6, does with its light. So why is the word play and the connection back to the sun here important? Well, the psalmist is making a wonderfully crafted point that just like the end of verse 6, where nothing is hidden from the sun's heat, here, after reflecting on God's perfect instruction and revelation, he prays that he too might be completely exposed. The psalmist prays for illumination. He prays for the heat of God's instruction to do its work in his life. He asks for his hidden faults that he can't even discern to be forgiven. He prays that the sins that he's done by decision and choice, which he calls willful, that those things might not rule over him because that's a great sin, presumably because he knows explicitly that he's done it and is responsible, right? He prays that he might be completely exposed in the way the sun leaves nothing deprived of its heat. And so there's something really to take away there, isn't there, from that? Bankstown, I wonder when was the last time God's instruction in Scripture exposed, exposed sin in your life? When did it last reveal that you, something that you may have attempted to keep in the dark? 
When was the last time God's word drove you to ask for forgiveness? Or maybe when was the last time it illuminated who God is to you? Maybe His warmth, but also maybe His anger. If I were to ask you face to face, could you recall the last time? Because if that's what God's perfect word does for His people, I wonder if that's true for you. So we've looked at the poetry. Let's look at the posture now. Um, I don't know how you responded to those questions that I just asked, but uh, if I'm being honest, if you if I were to respond, I'd probably say that while I want God to do His work in my life, um, I probably I probably want that through gritted teeth. I don't think I'd want it fully and joyfully because it doesn't sound very fun. It doesn't sound very desirable to be to be illuminated and exposed. That, that doesn't sound crash hot. But what's the posture of the psalmist? And at verse 10, the psalmist says that God's instruction to him is more precious to him than even the most pure gold. That that instruction that reveals and exposes is sweeter than, to him than even the purest of honey. I'm going to paraphrase a bit of C.S. Lewis here, but he pretty much says early in his reflection on this particular verse, he says that, you know, I can understand uh, why, I can understand, right, if the psalmist is saying uh, God's mercies are sweet and precious to him. Or maybe some aspect of his character is sweet and precious to him. But his instructions? Like, I understand that you can respect that, you can try to obey it, you can agree with it, but to, to, for it to seem delicious, to exhilarate you, that's really difficult. And I wonder whether for you, you're in the same boat as, as, as C.S. Lewis, right? And so why does the psalmist pray as he prays? Why does he view God's instruction the way that he does? I believe the key to that is he prays to God as his rock and his redeemer. I think that's the key, that he prays to God as his rock and his redeemer. See, for the people of God who originally sung this song, the little italics at the top of the psalm that tells us that, tells us that they thought back to God's servant, David, as they sung this song. Right? See, see, for David, God was certainly his rock and his redeemer, right? I mean, we heard a little bit in the first reading already. David was chosen by God. David knew God personally. He knew God deeply. God redeemed him and rescued him time and time again from times of trouble and times of war. And as the people of God, at a later point in history, they look back to what God did for his servant David, what God did for his people Israel under David, they're recalling this commitment that God has to them, this willingness that he has for them, the delight that God shows to them that he would redeem his servant and his people over and over again. And so those very instructions that may have been just strict guidelines of what was good and right, slowly but surely become instructions that are not coming from some tyrant, but from a deliverer who rescues and now wants what is best for them. Now, a few years ago, I visited a, um, a rural village in Zambia with, with World Vision. Uh, my, spon my sponsor child is there, and, and, and these projects that they do, um, World Vision does, they, they last for 20 years. 
right? And the idea is that, that, and the aim is, is that it's not just to deliver the, the village out of poverty. The reason why it's so long is that it takes time for the village to become self-sustaining so that when uh, the aid leaves, that they're able to, to, to keep going and not return to poverty. And so uh, the work of World Vision and the guidance that the staff, the locals, locals in Zambia would give to these rural villages um, was a lot of hard work, right? Finding the right location to build wells so that the water would be clean as it came up, learning to maintain them, learning different agricultural practices, learning to start and sustain businesses particular to their context, right? A lot of this work was so foreign to them. It made no sense to them. It was so hard. And I imagine a lot of the times it was burdensome. But, right, there's, there's, a, there's a really big but there, right? That the staff of World Vision and the community knew this. They were there to deliver them from poverty. And so even though the work was hard, even though it took so much energy and time that was so foreign and different to them, they knew that these locals coming to them were doing what was best for them so that they could be rescued out of poverty. See, following these guidelines ultimately came from a place of delight. And friends, just like Israel, who went back to the servant David upon reflecting on God's instruction, we too go back to another servant a greater servant, a greater David, one who in every way was blameless, innocent, who had no faults, willful or hidden, perfectly pleasing in God's sight, and yet this greater, perfect David, he gave up his life to rescue and redeem his people. See, the first David, he, he received redemption. This greater David, he gives redemption. For the Jesus follower, following God's instructions, Therefore, just naturally, it, it's, it should be so much sweeter, so much more precious, because it, it overflows from a delight from this greater David, Jesus, God himself, who delights so much in us that he would die in order to deliver us. His instructions are beautiful in light of that, aren't they? See, the religious, when they see the law and the instructions of God, what they'll do is they'll, they'll obey it, but they'll obey it perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of pride. People who are irreligious, they're just going to be indifferent. They're not going to care about God's instructions. But for the Jesus follower, God's instructions aren't crushing. They aren't, at least, not done out of fear. It's honey from a honeycomb. It's the purest of gold. And even as it exposes and, and illuminates in our lives, we know that that is the road of blessing from our rock and our redeemer. See, um, you know, for some of you who really, really like C.S. Lewis, uh, just to comfort you a little bit, he didn't stay in that uncertainty. Uh, he would go on to write, further along in his reflections, he would write, he would write this about the man reading about the instructions, seeing it as sweet and precious. He would say this, that this is the language of a man ravished by a moral beauty and if we cannot at all share in his experience, we shall be the losers. Language of a man ravished by moral beauty. Church, have you been ravished by the beauty of God's instruction through our redeeming servant, Jesus? And we've heard from a whole number of voices 
this evening, haven't we? We've heard that God has revealed Himself in nature through its silent voice. We've heard that God reveals Himself perfectly in His instruction and word. And God reveals Himself in our cries of delight to Him and our invitation for Him to search us as our Redeemer. And while not all are essential to actually know God, together they add a depth. They work in harmony to make the melody ring even more beautifully than it already does. Let me pray. Father God, we ask that we would just be so sensitive to you speaking to us, that even as we walk out of here, as we see the gray in the sky, uh, as we see uh, the textures in, in, in the greenery around us, uh, as we look at your creation and your people, that we would see you at work. Father, we would also ask that we would be people of your word who delight in it. As we heard Grace share so openly earlier, who, who, who see that as truth revealed. Help us to desire it and to love it and to see it as truly precious and truly sweet. We thank you for your son Jesus who gave everything up for us, redeemed us, so that this would be our very delight. Move in us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we stand.